Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Today, we are starting a two-episode focus on neurobiology and couple functioning. You know, facilitating change in couples therapy is a challenging thing. Understanding how the brain works, both to maintain and break old habits, certainly important for our clients and for us as couple and family therapists. Human brains and behavior are shaped by genetic predispositions and early experience. But we are not doomed by our genes or our past. Neuroscientific discoveries of the last two decades have provided an optimistic and really revolutionary new view of adult brain functioning. People can change. This revelation is all about neuroplasticity, offering hope to therapists and couples around the world seeking to improve their relationships. Sharing her extensive clinical experience and integrative perspective informed by neuroscience and relationship science, Dr. Mona Fishbane is going to join us today and give some great insight into the neurobiology underlying couples' dances of reactivity. Listeners today will learn how partners become reactive and emotionally dysregulated with each other, what exactly is going on in their brains when they do that, and we will talk about how to empower therapists and the couples they treat to change these interpersonal dynamics by understanding the neurobiology of couple functioning. Let me tell you a little bit about Mona. Mona Fishbane is a clinical psychologist licensed in Illinois and New Jersey. She's a former director of the Couple Therapy Training Program at the Chicago Center for Family Health. Mona specializes in treating couples and adults. What I love about her work is her ability to synthesize research. And as she'll tell us today, she spent several years digesting all the news you can use from neuroscience to distill it down to make it accessible for couples and therapists. Mona is the 2017 Family Psychologist of the Year Award recipient from the APA. And her book, Loving with the Brain in Mind, Neurobiology and Couple Therapy, was published by Norton several years ago and will be the focus of our talk. Tenio is AAMFT's online education platform and provides clinical training with a focus on systems and relational therapies. Tenio courses are all online and can be accessed anywhere in the world. Courses can be started, paused, and completed at any time to accommodate busy mental health professionals' schedules. Tenio courses are approved by many state regulatory boards to provide continuing education credit hours and cover such diverse topics as marketing your practice, elder care, working with LGBTQ clients, and ethics. 
Explore the course catalog at www.aamft.org forward slash learning and use code TENEO10 for 10% off your purchase. I'm so happy to be joined by Dr. Mona Fishbane and we are going to talk about something today that is often requested. It's the intersection of couples therapy with neurobiology. It seems like all forms of couples therapy now, even existing, our standard models have incorporated over the years a neurobiological or neuropsychological component. And we are going to talk this with Mona, who's really dedicated oh, the last 10 years or so of her career to becoming an expert on this. So I always like podcasts where you can listen to and then walk away with some psychoeducation for your clients. In this case today, we're talking about couples. So some psychoeducation, but also maybe some go-to interventions as you start to expand your therapeutic toolkit, so to speak. But Mona, the first question is always, you know, how did you get interested in generally in systemic therapy, working with couples, and then specifically neurobiological functions of couples. So first of all, it's delightful to be with you. I'm really excited about our conversation. And I think this podcast is terrific what you do. I would say that I'm an integrative therapist. I weave together different theories and approaches. I'm not eclectic in the sense of just a little of this and a little of that. I try to be thoughtful how I integrate. I was a philosophy major in college, so I'm always learning and always loving to integrate theory and practice. I weave together psychodynamic, narrative, emotion-focused, intergenerational, systemic approaches. And really, to me, it's just a thrill to learn something new that can that can help uh, enlighten my approach. I really stumbled onto neuroscience in a very lovely way. In 2004, I wanted to go to take my mother-in-law, Nana, who I was very close with, to Cape Cod for a little vacation. I used to take her away for a few days. I know that's not the, the way it's supposed to go with mother-in-law and daughters-in-law, but we were very close. I saw that on Cape Cod, they have these wonderful seminars where you learn in the morning with a great expert, you get CEUs, and then you go play for the rest of the day. So I slept Nana along and she took her books while, to read while I was in the, in the seminar. And the, the presenter was Alan Shore talking about neuroscience, uh, not relevant to couples at that point. And I was a complete newbie, a neuroscience newbie. I had never read, learned anything about it, 2004. And I was completely blown away. My mouth was open the entire, the entire morning every day. And I came away really curious about this field and what it could help us learn as clinicians. So then I started training with Dan Siegel, who uh, created this field called interpersonal neurobiology, along with Alan Shore, which looks at not just the brain, but the brain's interaction with the body and then the interaction of brains, bodies, and relationships, which of course brings us into the systemic world. Family therapy has a multi-level perspective, right? We, including the macro level. We've come a long way in the last few decades around incorporating an awareness about culture and larger context. And interpersonal neurobiology adds what I call the micro level, at the level of what's going on in our brains and bodies when we're in relationships, when we're in love, when we're crazy in love, when we're upset, when we're angry, when we're scared, defensive. And then how do relationships affect our physical and mental health? And it turns out they do, for better or for worse, and and also our brain health. So I started writing articles on integrating neuroscience with couple and family therapy. My first article, I think, was in 2007. And I I published several in, in family therapy journals. And then publisher Norton asked me to write a book on the topic. 
in 2009. I signed a contract. It was published in 2013. Um, it took a long time to write the book because I had to read. I decided I couldn't just rely on Dan Siegel and his colleagues for everything. I really had to read the research itself. So I, I read a lot in a lot of areas and, you know, emotion regulation and gender differences and neuroplasticity change, etc. So each chapter was its own research project. Uh, it finally came out in 2013. So that's my journey. I think it's part of my nature to be constantly looking for new ideas and to be integrative. And I find the world of interpersonal, it continues to evolve since I've written the book in wonderful ways. So that's sort of my backstory of how I got interested in this. And I have heard about you before, but certainly I read the book and our mutual friend, Jay LeBeau, said you should talk to to Mona. And what I like about the book, it is written in a very user-friendly way. The clinicians are the audience and clinicians, couples therapists specifically, educate couples. Psychoeducation is a powerful intervention. So what do you think is essential neurobiological psychoeducation that every couples therapist should have in their toolkit? So before I get to that terrific question, I just want to say a couple things. First of all, the name of the book is Loving with the Brain in Mind, Neurobiology and Couple Therapy. Secondly, I wrote it for clinicians. It's definitely for therapists, but it's also for anyone. <laughs> I really wanted it to be understandable by regular folks, and I created a, a composite couple throughout the book, uh, Lisa and Eric. For me, it was very important that it be understandable. So it's also a book, and the book itself can be given as psychoeducation if clients are inclined to read it. The other thing I want to just say, both for myself and I think for all of us therapists, is that everything that we're going to talk about and everything that's in the book is not just for our therapy work, it's for our lives. <laughs> you know, those of us in, in relationships know how hard it is to be in a relationship. We all have, as we'll get to, an amygdala gets all agitated. We go to fight or flight when we feel threatened. So we are human beings like our clients. And I think that it's really important from my point of view that this is sort of for everyone. It's, it's, it's about how to be a better person and how to have better relationships, both for us and certainly uh, to help clients. So with regard to your question of what are some psychoeducation techniques, I think that every, first of all, what the couple therapist should know, and then maybe afterwards we can talk about what a therapist might teach to the client. We all have an amygdala, which is something shared with lower animals. It's deep in the emotional brain. And the amygdala's job is to make sure we stay alive. It's to ensure survival. The amygdala is always looking for danger. So if you're walking, once, one time we were walking with friends in uh, the Canadian Rockies, and there are, of course, bears in that area. And you don't want to get between a mother bear and its cubs because then you could be very much in trouble. So one, of, one member of our group did walk ahead, which he wasn't supposed to do, but alone. And he ended up, indeed, on one side of the path was the mother bear, and on the other side were the cubs. And he knew he was in trouble. His amygdala, his heart started racing, right? And he quickly backed up and came back to us and we went another direction. The amygdala's job is to detect danger. So if you're walking and you see a snake in the forest or whatever, it, it gets you out of there really fast, okay? But the, there are a couple problems with the amygdala. It's not very smart. It's pretty basic. It's pretty primitive. It's biased towards the negative. So it always is looking for trouble. It doesn't notice the positive necessarily. And the other thing is that the amygdala, which we'll maybe get to later, the amygdala also processes and holds emotional components of old memories. So let's say you're a couple in your living room. You're not in the forest. There's no snake. There's no bear. There's just your par partner or your spouse. And you know your partner raises their eyebrow in a critical tone or look, and you go nuts, right? Well, what's happened is 
you've seen that look before and you know the criticism is coming, so you're getting very defensive. And on top of it, let's say you had a critical parent. Let's say your father was critical. And your whole life has been shaped around that, right? And now your partner is critical. So that your amygdala is registering threat not only from this moment with your partner, but also remembering, quote-unquote, not consciously, this is all unconscious, experiencing again that sense of threat that you felt when your father was critical. So the amygdala has this kind of like a double whammy, right? So that's our lower brain, and we share it with animals, and we are animals. <laughs> we share a lot with animals neurobiologically. But we do have something that, that lower animals don't have. That's the prefrontal cortex. That's the higher brain behind your forehead. The prefrontal cortex is the most recent part of the brain to evolve, and it's special to humans. And it allows us to think, to plan, to regulate our emotions, to pause, and to choose how to respond. The prefrontal cortex allows us to live according to our higher values. So that's great, right? So we've got on the one hand the amygdala, which is rushing to reactivity and often causes a lot of damage in the process. And the prefrontal cortex allows us to pause and choose. And I think a lot of our work as therapists, frankly, is helping our clients learn to regulate their amygdala because the prefrontal cortex actually regulates the amygdala. It's one synaptic connection away from the amygdala, particularly the part right in front of your forehead. But there's a little catch. The prefrontal cortex works pretty slowly, and the amygdala works really fast, which is great for survival, right? You want to be able to get out of that forest when you see that snake before you even think about it. But your amygdala can, quote-unquote, hijack the brain before your prefrontal cortex is even aware what's going on. When that happens, your prefrontal cortex, actually, they, they put people in the fMRI machine, which is the scanner that allows scientists and researchers to see what's going on in parts of your brain when you're angry, sad, afraid, in love, etc. And when the amygdala hijacks the brain, they found that the prefrontal cortex goes to sleep. It goes offline. So you're in a state now. <laughs> and when you see red, you can't see straight. You can't think straight. I'm sure I, most of your listeners <laughs> have been in that situation. I know I have. I, my hair is turning gray, but it used to be red. And I had a redheaded temper to match. So I know very much about my own amygdala. So what we need to do is teach techniques for our clients to calm down and reach for their higher self. I actually want to tell a personal story, if I may. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so when I was eight years old and I had a temper, I wasn't like an angry kid. I was actually a very good girl. I was learning how to be a family therapist in my own family. That's another story. But I did have a temper periodically. I would get, you know, really mad and then I would calm down really fast and then, you know, repair the damage and apologize. And my parents didn't shame me for my temper, which I thought was lovely. They attributed it to my red hair. And my mother also had red hair and a temper. So we were well matched. And my father, who had been a philosophy major in college, as I did later, said to my eight-year-old self, Mona, can I teach you something from a Roman philosopher of long, from long ago that would, might help you here? And I said, sure. And he said, so there was this ancient Stoic Roman philosopher named Seneca. And Seneca said, most powerful is the person who has himself in his own power. And I was completely blown away. So Seneca defined power not as the ability to dominate someone else, but the ability to regulate your own emotions and choose who you want to be in any moment. And I must say that teaching from my father has stayed with me all these years. I've gotten much better at regulating my amygdala. My hair has turned gray. Maybe that 
maybe that helps. But but the truth is, I've worked really hard on emotion regulation, and I help my clients a lot with that. We'll get we'll get to that. But it's really true. We can only control ourselves. If we judge outcome based on anybody else's uh, response, a lot of times we set ourselves up for failure, both inside and outside of the therapy room. So the way you're even talking. It's beautiful because it's accessible language. It's educating. So when I see a couple cycle going on in front of me, uh, on the external, I see a lot of times loud tone. I see dismissive nonverbals. And inside, though, I see that amygdala firing away. And I think it's really important, even the way you just said it, to educate couples on that piece what else is essential as far as this psychoeducation 101 so one is to normalize everyone has an amygdala i mean couples clients often feel tremendous shame when they have an amygdala attack right they 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 scream they yell and they're not proud of themselves even though they're you know throwing their their power around but really they're very disempowered inside in that situation so that's the seneca piece right that some guy who's screaming at his wife throwing his male privilege and power around is actually feeling like a helpless little boy inside. And so the therapist, I think, needs to see that and help him understand uh, how he's gotten disempowered and to normalize it, which is really de-shaming. So everybody has an amygdala. It's part of our survival toolkit. So that's okay. The problem is you can't run your life on the basis of your amygdala. You're going to have a disastrous relational life and probably a disastrous work life. And by the way, <laughs> a disastrous health life because the research shows that um, they used to think that you know type A personalities had heart attacks. What they found is it wasn't the, the workaholic piece of it. It was the anger that, that led to the heart attack. So chronic anger is really bad for your immune system, your cardiovascular health, and a whole lot of other stuff. So part of our job, I think, is to help our clients see that when they use their go-to angry reactive reactivity, that, the, that those reactions actually are harmful to them as well as their partner. So, we, But we normalize it. But the fact that everybody has an amygdala doesn't mean we get a pass that we can just do whatever we want, right? So we also have, everyone also has a prefrontal cortex that's hopefully relatively intact. And then we teach our clients techniques for emotion regulation. So a lot of my research in the book and a lot of my work with clients is about emotion regulation. You know, back in the day, I was never a straight behavioral therapist or cognitive behavioral therapist, but CBT was originally sort of ignoring the emotional piece. And I think in light of the neuroscience, in light of emotion-focused therapy and other emotion-based approaches, CBT and many, many, many approaches now, you know, include a focus on emotions, which I think is really important. So with regard to emotion regulation, I teach techniques. I like to talk about tools for your toolbox. You know, men particularly love the tools for your toolbox image, not, not to be too sexist or anything. Women like it too. But the point is that we want to operationalize this stuff and not leave it vague because otherwise it's like murky. What is this emotion stuff, right? So some of the tools are, and this is based on all the research that, I, that I've been reading, I continue to read. One set of emotion regulation tools are top-down cognitive techniques. So for example, we talk in family therapy about reframing, right? The neuroscientists and psychologists call that reappraisal. So let's say you're a married couple, a mixed gender, wife leaves for work in a rush in the morning and leaves all her dishes in the sink and it's a big mess. Husband comes down and says, he has two choices, right? What he can think. One is, what a selfish so-and-so. She left me with her mess to clean up like always, right? So that's one way of looking at it. Obviously not very productive. 
The second is, you know, she's usually very good about cleaning up after herself. I know she's really nervous about this meeting she's having with her boss and she's doing a big presentation. I'm happy to clean up after her today, right? Those are two very different ways of looking at what's going on. Reframing a reappraisal is really important. Thinking about your partner in kind ways, in giving them the benefit of the doubt, I think is really important. Another Using our yeah. language, if I control my amygdala response, I have a better chance of remembering how I'm connected to my partner, giving them the benefit of the doubt and finding another reason that that could have happened and it's not against me. Exactly, exactly, right. And being more sympathetic to your partner, I think that's, a, that's another whole, whole piece of this. With regard to particularly emotion regulation, another tried and true and researched way is to simply name your feelings. They call this affect labeling in, the, in, in shop talk, in neuroscience. And basically, so if you say, I'm feeling really upset right now, and you're not just spewing upset or anger, right, but you're naming it, when you name the feeling, it calms down your amygdala because your higher brain is getting activated. And when the higher brain, particularly left brain in this case, names the feeling, the amygdala calms down. That is so interesting because you know how many times we'll listen to couples and they'll be like, I feel that she should do this or he should do that. And they're, they're not labeling their feeling. They're talking about, they're saying feeling, but they're making a statement or sharing a thought. But if you can actually label the emotion, whether it's primary or secondary, it causes you to shift and deescalate. Yes. And to take some responsibility for these are my feelings, as opposed to you're doing this to me. I mean, you're doing this to me makes you into a victim, makes the person into a a victim, which is a very disempowered place to be. We want to help people become authors of their own responses and authors of their own narrative and not victims of their partner. We live in a blame culture. That's a whole other conversation, right? But our culture really promotes victimhood. And, and I'm not talking about people who are legitimately, you know, or, or really victimized, but I'm talking about, you know, I, you, I got hurt by you. I got hurt in our, in our relationship. It's your fault. You did this to me. I'm a victim. You're the perpetrator. And again, there are certainly situations where there are perpetrators and victims. But by and large, our culture is a blame culture. And I think that's really problematic. That really messes couples up. But the other thing I I like to do from a cognitive point of view for emotion regulation is help clients think about their higher values for themselves in the relationship. Who do they want to be in this relationship? I feel like it's really important to, to think about those higher values. I sometimes ask clients to couples to go home and each separately write the Ten Commandments of our relationship. So they, they're thoughtful when they do this. They come back, and often the lists are pretty similar. The point is that they are now owning their goals and their values, and then we want to operationalize them. So when you have a, a vision of who you want to be in this relationship, it really does help you, I think, regulate your emotions. So these these yeah. things lead to what you call relational empowerment, which is so important. So you're talking about how you facilitate that with a couple. Another thing that you talk a lot about and is a hot topic that I think people mention, sometimes they know what it means, sometimes they don't know what it means, especially as it impacts couple functioning, and that is neuroplasticity. So what is it and how can we increase it in the couples that we're working with. So before I get to neuroplasticity, I wanted to say one more thing about one more category of emotion regulation techniques oh, that we do. teach. And these are, so the cognitive are the top down. The other category is bottom up body-based techniques. This includes mindful uh, belly breathing, 
mindfulness meditation, which is really helpful, really, really helpful. Lots and lots of research on this in terms of calming one down and emotion regulation. And just putting a hand on your heart. You know, I'm doing it right now as we're talking. You can't see me, but put a hand on your heart and it just helps you calm down. So these are techniques that I teach clients, and I think these are really powering, which I think is really important. In terms of neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change. And the news is actually very good for, for those who are in therapy or doing therapy. Years ago, 20 years ago, the understanding was, which was wrong, it turns out, that neuroplasticity was only available to kids and teenagers up to age 25, that your brain was in formation, so the new neurons could form new circuits with each other, new connections with each other. And after 25, it's all downhill. You lose neurons, you're set in your ways, and no neuroplasticity, which is You very... can't teach a proverbial old dog new tricks. Right. That's a very dim view of human nature. And it really is a very dim view of therapy, right? Like, what's the point? But <laughs> in the last 10, 20 years, a lot of research has come out showing that the adult human brain is capable of neuroplasticity actually throughout life. The catch is it depends how we live. So if you're a couch potato, if you're caught up in same old, same old thinking, or what Lou Cozzolino calls hardening of the categories, which I think is great, <laughs> right? Where you just, I, I know what I know, or as Papa used to say, I am what I am then you're unlikely to nurture neuroplasticity. You really need to be open to learning new things. So there's, there's actually five categories of behaviors that nurture neuroplasticity, and this is based on the research. And by the way, after I'd been teaching this and writing about this, I read recently Sanjay Gupta's new book, Keep Sharp, which is a lovely book about how to keep your brain as sharp as possible as you age. And he talks about these as well. So one thing is daily physical exercise. The brain needs blood flow to function properly. So we adults need to be exercising every day. It doesn't mean you have to hit the gym every day, although God bless if you can. I'm going for a swim after our talk today. But just a half hour walk, a brisk walk will do it. And that gets your neurons bubbling and your brain perky. Second category is healthy eating, probably mostly the Mediterranean diet. Really important not to have unhealthy food going into your brain body. Sleeping is really important. Getting enough sleep, which is usually about seven hours, and I know a lot of us have trouble sleeping. These are all important for brain health. Paying attention. So half the time, more than half the time, most of the time we're half asleep. We're on automatic pilot. And the brain is designed this way to help us just get by. But what we want to do is wake up. We want to be intentional. You know how you're driving somewhere and you arrive and it's like, Oh my gosh, where was I? How did I get here? You're <laughs> you know, like on automatic to, pilot. Exactly. You're on you're on a, assuming you know where you were going, you're not in a new place. So the idea is to pay attention. And again, mindfulness is really important for paying attention and, and waking up. And I do teach clients mindfulness uh, meditation. It's pretty easy. Another important component for nurturing neuroplasticity is learning new things, not just doing same old, same old. So keep pushing the envelope, learn a new language, ballroom dancing, to expose yourself to things you haven't necessarily learned before. Like for me, neuroscience was totally new. I, had, I was not a science person before I learned all this. And finally, social support is really important for brain health and mental health. So those are the components. And if we, of course, it helps to have good luck too. I mean, if you have a gene for early Alzheimer's, this may not prevent it totally. But in general, the research is very positive that all these activities, these practices can nurture brain health. And then it nurture, that also nurtures couple relationship plasticity, right? That you're 
And part of our work as therapists is to help our clients adopt what uh, Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset so that we are partly encouraging them to think about growing as a positive thing. You know, I'll have a couple come to therapy and the wife wants to change things a bit and the husband says, I'm the same man you married. Why, why, you're the one who's changing, you know, as if it's like a bad thing to change. So I think we want to help our clients embrace growth and that can be, a, you know, a piece of the work early on as well. Okay, you're making a good case. Everything you've said here, both these top-down and bottom-up techniques, you could do these yourself. You could do these with individual clients. And, you know, there's the debate in the field of should individuals in couples therapy now, should individuals be focused on soothing themselves like these techniques would speak to? Or, you know, some of our most popular models with there's a science and an art behind like emotionally focused therapy that would say, you know, partners should learn to soothe each other. Where do you fall on that continuum? So I think it's a great question. For me, it's both and. And actually, I really like uh, Rhonda Goldman and Les Greenberg wrote a book on couples. And they really develop this point very nicely. I think if you only self-soothe and self-regulate and don't turn to your partner for comfort, you're going to be kind of off in your own orbit. It's kind of a disconnected way of being. If you only look to your partner to take care of you, um, I've had clients where the man needed sex every day in order to not blow his top. (laughs) That was his emotion regulation. So the woman had to service him. You know, that's not exactly a great way to to have a romantic relationship. He needed to learn other ways to self-soothe. Some people turn to, of course, drugs or alcohol for self-soothing. So I think it's really important. I guess there's a larger issue here, which is that I think that we as human beings need to develop ourselves as individuals in terms of our moral, ethical responsibility, our emotion regulation, our empowerment, personal empowerment, in order to be good in relationship and, and vice versa. So that there's a kind of both and about this emotion regulation that, that there's soothing each other is really important and can really increase intimacy, but also that we need to, to kind of take some responsibility for ourselves. Oh, I agree. And I think we'd coach couples if you're having a bad day to first try to regulate on your own, but then feeling secure enough in your partner that if you needed reassurance from them, you could go to them, which ties nicely into this continuum between independence and interdependence. And I I like always to think of couples as interdependent. I can go out, explore the world. If, If I could do well, great. But if not, I can come home to my stable base and my partner is going to be there and they're going to be connected, regulated enough that they can help me on the days I can't do it. But the notion of interdependence really fits, I think, what we're talking about here today. No, I think I totally agree with you. I, th- I think that our culture has gone completely off the deep end, the dominant U.S. culture, in terms of individualism and competition, which only fuels couples' power struggles and power over behavior. But the truth is, all the research shows that we are deeply social creatures. We need other throughout life. We never outgrow our need for others. And we are indeed interdependent. And that's actually a piece of psychoeducation, because I think, um, you know, a lot of people are taught stand on your own two feet, especially males, but sometimes women as well. Uh, Stand on your own two feet, don't need anybody. I was just reading in The Networker, George Fowler, who's a wonderful EFT person, wrote about his experience in 9-11 and helping uh, firefighters who survived 9-11 and their partners. 
And many, most of them, including I think himself early on, did not confide in their partners about what they had gone through. They were so traumatized and they did not want to traumatize their partner. And it really negatively impacted the marriages, the relationships. Learning how to use your partner as, as a secure base, that's Bowlby's term and a term in a safe haven, I think is really important. The problem is in really unhappy couples, instead of our partner having our back, our partner is a source of threat. And again, I don't, I'm not talking now about abusive couples, but just even in terms of not being there for me, always being critical, never being around when I need you. All right, I'm not going to so, take a brick of my wall down if I think my partner's going to use that brick to nail me with it, Absolutely, you, you bet, absolutely. So, so our work is often around going underneath, why is that dynamic happening? You know, why is that partner so defended, defended or critical? So in 2004, the same year that I stumbled on neuroscience, Michelle Schenkman and I wrote an article in Family Process called Vulnerability Cycle, Working with Impasses in Couple Therapy. And basically, we looked at the couple dance, let's say, criticize, defend, and we looked at what's going on behind the scenes. So the difficult behavior of the dance, let's say, criticize, defend, we identified as survival strategies that each person had. If you want, I can give an example of Lisa and Eric from my book, which is a composite of all my cases and friends and in my own life. Yeah. So Lisa is upset because Eric is not available emotionally to her and has always been a little bit more withdrawn. Lisa gets critical. Eric gets defensive and withdraws more. The marriage was stabilized by Lisa's sister, Kathy. The sisters were very close. They had their children together. So Lisa turned to her sister for a lot of the things her husband couldn't give her, which, by the way, I think is very common in relationships that you turn to a parent, you know, your mother, your sisters, maybe this is more true for women, but I think it's true for men too, in both heterosexual and, and gay relationships. Kathy was Lisa's, was the third stool of this marriage. <laughs> she helped stabilize it. And then she got breast cancer and died within a year. And Eric was totally like unable to step into her shoes for his wife. And he was unable to help Lisa grieve because Eric's backstory is that his father died when he was five and his and he's an only child and his mother was very caught up in her own grief and couldn't be there for her son to help him grieve or get in touch with his emotions at all. His way of dealing with grief is to put it away. So he tried to help Lisa put her grief away, which fell very badly on her. And she was ready to divorce him when he came to therapy. So the cycle for them is she criticizes, he withdraws, okay? The vulnerability cycle, we look at what, what's the survival strategies. In her case, it's angry criticism. In his case, it's withdrawal and defensiveness. And then we look at what are the vulnerabilities fueling the survival strategies. So for Lisa, her backstory is that her father was an alcoholic who, when he drank, would get physically abusive and verbally abusive, never sexually abusive. And her mother was kind of frightened and withdrawn and passive and would just go to her room and knock and block the whole thing out. So Lisa felt really angry and really unprotected. One of Lisa's survival strategies in that home was to become really angry and to stand up for herself. But her vulnerability is feeling unprotected and abandoned, okay, by both her parents. Eric's backstory, his father died when he was five, mother was very taken up with her own grief, and mother felt so guilty at not protecting her husband from what happened to him and how he died that she became overprotective with Eric, who was five. Eric interpreted her overprotection as criticism, and it really hurt him. And the only way he could get away from it was to go to his room and close the door, which she allowed. So you see that his vulnerability of feeling criticized and inadequate led to his survival strategy of withdrawal. They are both enacting in the marriage their exact survival strategies from their family of origin. 
So this vulnerability cycle allows us to access the dance, what's behind the dance for each person. It also accesses the family of origin, the background of each person's vulnerabilities and survival strategies. And then we help, the, and this comes back to empowerment. We frame the dance now as a circular process, not a, a linear blame, you know, you did this to me, they each blame each other. And I help them see that they're both the victims of this dance and they're also the inadvertent co-creators of the dance. This is the dance they do together. We draw the cycle. Some people put it up on their refrigerator, you know, as a, like this is our dance. And it externalizes the dance. So that's a little borrowing from Michael White's narrative work. And we help the couple become a team vis-a-vis -vis their dance and, quote, get meta to the dance, okay? So this is a way of bringing together, and, and, and then, of course, I integrate the neurobiology, which is, you know, how, how each one is getting activated when they feel threatened. As threatened you said about other. 20 minutes ago, the amygdala remembers. It remembers this response they had in their family of origin. And that piece seems essential to describing the cycle as our unfinished business from our family of origin carrying over to our current relationship. And, and then I wanted to say another word about empowerment, because... As they do this work, they draw the cycle and they each identify their own way of self-protecting. We, we soften it because each one can picture the other one as a child trying to survive in their family of origin, which if they have any love left, really does soften things as each kind of feels protective of that little girl or little boy that they once were. So um, power has been mostly thought of as power over, right? I can make you do what I want. <laughs> I can throw my weight around. But... Feminists, and I've tried to develop this further, have talked about power to and power with, which I think is crucial with couples. So power to is the ability to be the person you want to be, to have that prefrontal thoughtfulness instead of amygdala reactivity, to live according to your own higher values, to be your best self. And power with is the ability to co-create a fair and just and respectful relationship with empathy and care to make room for both people's voices. So a lot of my work is really about empowering. So I empower, for example, Eric to find other ways to talk about when he's feeling threatened. And one of them is to speak from his vulnerability directly. So instead of running away from Lisa, which gets her amygdala going and makes her angrier, he might say to her, Lisa, I really want to hear you right now but I'm feeling so overwhelmed that I need to take a break. And well, let's come back in a half hour and try to talk more softly with each other, okay? Meanwhile, I coach Lisa on soft startup. That's Gottman's term, right? Of helping the person speak in a more gentle way. So instead of getting his amygdala going, she's getting his compassion activated. And then they come back. And then I ask Lisa to talk to Eric about her vulnerability of feeling lonely without blaming him. The daughter had gone to college, which really also was difficult for Lisa. So to say to Eric, I really am lonely and I'd love to spend more time with you. And that's very different from you're always at work, you're never home. So what also breaks up that sequence is that Eric now is, like, as you said, speaking from his vulnerability. He's just not bailing. And therefore that the pursuer, in this case, Lisa, probably has a better chance of letting him go and emotionally regulate in order to come back because she knows he'll come back. Whereas before, if he just leaves, she's probably going to pursue even more. Right. And I think what's really important is that he negotiates the timeout. And, and Gottman talks about this timeout, this ritual of a timeout. He negotiates it in the service of connection. So how you negotiate it is really important. If you run, run away to your room and slam the door, that's not negotiating a timeout. That's abandonment. I coach him to say, Lisa, I really want to be there for you. 
So this is in the service of connection. Right. So her amygdala starts calming down. He wants to be there for me. He just needs a little bit of a break, right? So she can tolerate that. That's very different than feeling abandoned. Really, really important. You know, I always tell couples when you can come back after a time out like that and you are regulated instead of like rolling your eyes or not even being able to look at your partner, you can look at them. You can touch them. You can remember why you're with them to start with. That is when you know you're ready to have that repair conversation. What you're talking about, just like we can increase our neuroplasticity as far as if you have enough of these corrective experiences, that also changes the dynamic in the relational neuroplasticity. So many of these popular models, as we've said, uh, just EFT, Gottman, Snarch's models in the last 10 to 15 years have incorporated these neurobiological components. What, because you really became an expert on this, you're integrative by nature, but because you were not attached to one model, you could really dive in and really understand all of these powerful things we've been talking about this hour. What do you think is in the future, in the next 10 or 15 years for how neurobiology and this type of research impacts uh, couples in general, and specifically our uh, love profession of couple therapy? Well, I think that for me, it's really important that we keep current with the literature in our field. I mean, we've, we keep current with larger cultural perspectives, cultural you know, differences, etc. I think we need to be keeping current with this as well. And it's evolving. The, the neuroscience is evolving. When I was in graduate school a gazillion years ago, they taught the, about the brain as a, being a black box. They, they didn't know anything about it. Of course, this was 1971. And, and what we knew was that a stimulus came in, there's a black box, which is your brain, and a response comes out. That's all they knew, right? And now, because, and, and most of the neuroscience development has to do with technology because they develop these scanners and abilities to really look inside the brain when you're in various states. Now we know a great deal more. And I think it's really important for clinicians to keep current with, with the research. I, I'm, I continue to read more about it. And, you know, like, for example, uh, techniques for empathy and compassion, the mindfulness movement. I think almost every therapist now that I know anyway uses mindfulness meditation because it's been shown to work. There's a lot of research that shows that meditators are more healthy physically and more calm emotionally and able to regulate their emotional brain. And that even if you give someone a, a six-week course in meditation, it does that. So in the whole mind-body part, I think, is much more integrated and will be more so in the future. You know, for me, as I said before, the research on change in neuroplasticity is, is very important. The other, I want to say something else about that, actually, about habits and change. Years and years ago, I trained with Olga Silverstein, who was at the Ackerman Institute, and she came to Boston to train some, some of us privately. A very powerful in the feminist critique and the changing of family therapy uh, from a patriarchal male-dominated to a much more gender-balanced and equal setup for sure. A very powerful name that I don't think gets enough credit in the history of the couple. Of I, I agree. And those, excuse me, those of us who were privileged to learn with her, really, it, we, we, we were just so grateful. She talked about the dance between stability and change, that our clients are really afraid of change, and we need to honor that. And I've really developed that more, and I've integrated it with the neuroscience. So for example, yes, the human brain, the adult brain is capable of change. Great news. The other side of the story is that our brains are wired for habit. The more you do something, the stronger the circuit of neurons that underlies that habit becomes. So there's a mutual recursive reinforcing of the neuronal circuits on the one hand and the habits on the other hand. So it's very hard to change in adulthood. It's not easy like it is as a child. So 
a lot of our work, I think, involves holding both of those pieces of awareness with our clients because we can get into power struggles with them, right? I mean, early on in family therapy, we were paradoxing. I, I trained at the Mental Research Institute, among other places, for a year. <laughs> and they were paradoxing their clients into changing. They didn't want them to know. Well, what. just like you said, they believed going into the black box, you know, Jay Haley, if you went into the black box, that would constrain change. So it's really isomorphic where we've come as a field. Yes. I thought it was it was very, I, I just it just didn't work for me. It, it wasn't, they didn't integrate any of the intergenerational. You, you, really you and a lot of people. It's why it has not yeah. aged well. The right, idea right. of a paradoxical intervention is kind of opposite of what we've been talking about today. Yeah. Right. But they, they certainly were aware that change is hard, okay? And and then, I mean, Freud often sort of blamed patients for being defensive, right? It was their defenses. Therapists from the get-go, from always, have struggled with how do you help quote-unquote resistant patients change or clients change. I put resistance in quotes because, to me, resistance, quote-unquote, is is two things. One is it's the nature of our brain to not want to change, to want to do same old, same old. And so there's a lot of work we need to do to help us go beyond that. And the other is that the very things that therapists are often asking clients to change that are getting in the way, let's say, of the couple relationships are survival strategies, <laughs> right? Eric literally survived by withdrawing. So how is he going to give that up, right? Lisa literally survived by being angry. In fact, at one point in the treatment, they had done a lot of work, and Lisa was still periodically having one of her, her fits of anger. And I said to her in a session, I said, Lisa, I want to ask you a question. If a giant came along and took away your anger all at once, what would it be like for you? And she said, I would be a puddle on the floor. I wouldn't be able to defend myself or protect myself. So that taught me a lot about how important anger was for her as a, literally a survival strategy, right? Yeah, what is life-preserving in one relationship can constrain another. But to understand, to honor the intent behind that or the historical role of how that functioned is a creates a for a therapist to connect with those clients and balance that alliance you have to understand where it served its purpose so exactly and yeah. then i would give and then i would give her we would find other ways she can protect herself without the anger she can have assertive voice with eric she can share with him what she's feeling in a way that is more successful right we want to help her get what she wants, which is an, a husband who's, who's available to her. So I, th I think this, this approach really helps us both understanding the neurobiology and the vulnerability cycle, helps us be more sympathetic with our clients, quote unquote, difficult behavior, because we understand where it's coming from. And when we do that, it, we're much less threatening to them and in, in inviting them to change. I think yeah, that's really important. Using our frame from this hour, it helps us control our own amygdala response to what we see. If your clients first are not likable, you have to learn to be curious. And kind of what we've talked about today helps you uh, to be curious. And, you know, you're a wonderful speaker. We've crammed so much very useful thing just like your book could be used for therapists and for the general public so could this podcast in the sense that anybody listening to this is gonna pick up some handy psychoeducation and some things you can integrate into your work with clients maybe things you're already doing mona if people want to continue the dialogue what is the best way to reach you so they can reach me through my website, which is monafishbane.com, www.monafishbane.com. On that website, I have a bunch of short videos, which kind of gives a little more flavor of my approach. It also has a list of all my articles as PDFs. And if anyone is interested in the actual PDF, they can email me through the website, and I'm happy to, uh, to send them to them. 
Eli back with you, concluding another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast, where we seek to educate, innovate, and relate one episode at a time. Thank you, Mona Fishbane. We talked plenty about the book. I would encourage you to go to monafishbane.com where you will find helpful information, including professional workshops that are coming up. There's some videos on there all around co-regulation and co-disregulation, like we mentioned. There is a great article from Family Process that she mentioned, and it takes what we talked about today a step further, talking about intergenerational wounds from an integrative relational neurobiological approach. Highly recommend that. And if you were interested more in that cycle of vulnerability that Mona was mentioning in the interview, you can find that article in Family Process back in 2004. Still holds the test of time 18 years later. As I said, this is an emerging topic. Psychobiology, the neurobiology of couples. In part two of our series, on the next installment of the AMFT podcast, we will talk about the psychobiological approach to couple therapy. That's known as PACT with Dr. Stan Tatkin, its founder. Remember, we drop every other Friday throughout the year, wherever you find your favorite podcast. We like to hear from you, the listener. You can get a hold of me, Eli, at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. I'm at Dr. Eli Live on Twitter. The AMFT is at the AMFT. Follow the conversation. We rely on you to drive the content for our show. I'd also like to tell you that the AAMFT Leadership Symposium, virtual in this COVID times, but powerful nonetheless. And in fact, virtual gives people that normally may not be able to make the trip a chance to check out what the Leadership Symposium is all about. If anything, the last few years have shown us the need for strong leadership that can tackle any challenge, whether that be in uh, life, home, or in the office. And the MFT field needs such leaders, which is why MFT is proud to offer a reimagined approach to our leadership training and development programs to meet these needs head on. There are going to be new leadership opportunities emerging for people with systemic thinking and the skill sets that MFT has. So explore amft.org. Learn all about the virtual leadership symposium that is coming up on March 31st. You can register there and see all of the speakers that are going on. You can also see about AMFT's Certificate of Leadership. If you're interested in a more extensive leadership training experience past the conference, the leadership track gives you in-depth training, personal assessments, and a mentor experience. There's also up to five scholarships based on merit to be awarded uh, if you are an early career family therapist and you have a high potential to develop your leadership skills. Again, amft.org. Check it out. I will be presenting Thursday on the conference all about my greatest fails leadership falling forward and failing so you can virtually check in if you're uh, want an alternative to listen to the interviews you can listen to me talk about how you learn from failure as always stay safe stay systemic systemic systemic